Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Greatest Love Stories. Today's story, Springtime a la carte, by O. Henry. Spring was taking its time to arrive in the city, and with no letter from her fiancé in weeks, Sarah quite wilted. In a faint golden glow from her dandelion-eyed dream, she fingered the typewriter keys absently for a little while, with her mind and heart in the meadow lane with her young farmer. The story begins. It was a day in March. Never, never begin a story this way when you write one. No opening could possibly be worse. It is unimaginative, flat, dry, and likely to consist of mere wind. But in this instance, it is allowable. For the following paragraph, which should have inaugurated the narrative, is too wildly extravagant and preposterous to be flaunted in the face of the reader without preparation. Sarah was crying over her bill of fare. Think of a New York girl shedding tears on the menu card. To account for this, you will be allowed to guess that the lobsters were all out, or that she had sworn ice cream off during Lent, or that she had ordered onions, or that she had just come from a Hackett matinee. And then, all these theories being wrong, you will please let the story proceed. The gentleman who announced that the world was an oyster, which he with his sword would open, made a larger hit than he deserved. It is not difficult to open an oyster with a sword. But did you ever notice anyone try to open the terrestrial bivalve with a typewriter? Like to wait for a dozen raw opened that way? Sarah had managed to pry apart the shells with her unhandy weapon far enough to nibble a wee bit at the cold and clammy world within. She knew no more shorthand than if she'd been a graduate in stenography just let slip upon the world by a business college. So, not being able to stenog... She could not enter that bright galaxy of office talent. She was a freelance typewriter and canvassed for odd jobs of copying. The most brilliant and crowning feat of Sarah's battle with the world was the deal she made with Schulenberg's home restaurant. The restaurant was next door to the old red brick in which she ballroomed. One evening after dining at Schulenberg's 40-cent, five-course table d'hote, Sarah took away with her the bill of fare. It was written in an almost unreadable script, neither English nor German, and so arranged that if you were not careful you began with a toothpick and rice pudding and ended with soup and the day of the week. The next day Sarah showed Schulenberg a neat card on which the menu was beautifully typewritten with the viands temptingly marshaled under their right and proper heads 
from hors d'oeuvre to not responsible for overcoats and umbrellas. Schulenberg became a naturalized citizen on the spot. Before Sarah left him, she had willingly committed to an agreement. She was to furnish typewritten bills of fare for the 21 tables in the restaurant, a new bill for each day's dinner, and new ones for breakfast and lunch as often as changes occurred in the food or as neatness required. In return for this, Schulenberg was to send three meals per diem to Sarah's hall room by a waiter, an obsequious one if possible, and furnish her each afternoon with a pencil draft of what fate had in store for Schulenberg's customers on the morrow. Mutual satisfaction resulted from the agreement. Schulenberg's patrons now knew what the food they ate was called, if even its nature sometimes puzzled them. And Sarah had food during a cold, dull winter, which was the main thing with her. And then the almanac lied, and said that spring had come. Spring comes when it comes. The frozen snows of January still lay adamant in the cross-town streets. The hand organs still played in the good old summertime with their December vivacity and expression. Men began to take thirty-day notes to buy Easter dresses. Janitors shut off steam. And when these things happen, one may know that the city is still in the clutches of winter. One afternoon Sarah shivered in her elegant hall bedroom. House heated, scrupulously clean, conveniences seemed to be appreciated. She had no work to do except Schulenberg's menu cards. Sarah sat in her squeaky willow rocker and looked out the window. The calendar on the wall kept crying to her, "'Springtime is here, Sarah! Springtime is here, I tell you! Look at me, Sarah! My figures show it! You've got a neat figure yourself, Sarah! A nice springtime figure! Why do you look out the window so sadly?' Sarah's room was at the back of the house. Looking out the window, she could see the windowless rear brick wall of the box factory on the next street. But the wall was clearest crystal, and Sarah was looking down a grassy lane shaded with cherry trees and elms and bordered with raspberry bushes and Cherokee roses. Spring's real harbingers are too subtle for the eye and ear. Some must have the flowering crocus, the wood-starring dogwood, the voice of bluebird, even so gross a reminder as the farewell handshake of the retiring buckwheat and oyster before they can welcome the lady in green to their dull bosoms. But to old earth's choicest kin, there come straight sweet messages from his newest bride, telling them they shall be no stepchildren unless they choose to be. On the previous summer, Sarah had gone into the country and loved a farmer. In writing your story, never hark back this way. It's bad art and cripples interest. Let it march, march. Sarah stayed two weeks at Sunnybrook Farm. There she learned to love old farmer Franklin's son, Walter. Farmers had been loved and wedded and turned out to grass in less time. But young Walter Franklin was a modern agriculturist. He had a telephone in his cowhouse, and he could figure up exactly what effect next year's Canada wheat crop would have on potatoes planted in the dark of the moon. It was in this shaded and raspberry lane that Walter had wooed and won her, and together they had sat and woven a crown of dandelions for her hair. He had immoderately praised the effect of the yellow blossoms against her brown tresses, and she had left the chaplet there, and walked back to the house swinging her straw sailor in her hands. They were to marry in the spring, at the very first signs of spring, Walter said, and Sarah came back to the city to pound her typewriter. A knock at the door dispelled Sarah's visions of that happy day. A waiter had brought the rough pencil draft of the home restaurant's next-day fare in old Schulenberg's angular hand. 
Sarah sat down to her typewriter and slipped a card between the rollers. She was a nimble worker. Generally, in an hour and a half, the 21 menu cards were written and ready. Today there were more changes on the bill of fare than usual. The soups were lighter. Pork was eliminated from the entrees, figuring only with Russian turnips among the roasts. The gracious spirit of spring pervaded the entire menu. Lamb, that lately was capering on the greening hillsides, was becoming exploited with the sauce that commemorated its gambols. The song of the oyster, though not silenced, was diminuendo con amore. The frying pan seemed to be held, inactive, behind the beneficent bars of the broiler. The pie list swelled. The richer puddings had vanished. The sausage with his drapery wrapped about him barely lingered in a pleasant thanatopsis with the buckwheats and the sweet but doomed maple. Sarah's figures danced like midgets above a summer stream. Down to the courses she worked, giving each item its position according to its length with an accurate eye. Just above the desserts came the list of vegetables. Carrots and peas, asparagus on toast, the perennial tomatoes and corn and succotash, lima beans, cabbage, and then... Sarah was crying over her bill of fare. Tears from the depths of some divine despair rose in her heart and gathered to her eyes. Down went her head on the little typewriter stand, and the keyboard rattled a dry accompaniment to her moist sobs. For she had received no letter from Walter in two weeks, and the next item on the bill of fare was dandelions. Dandelions with some kind of egg. But bother the egg. Dandelions, with whose golden blooms Walter had crowned her as queen of love and future bride. Dandelions, the harbingers of spring, her sorrow's crown of sorrow, reminder of her happiest days. Madam, I dare you to smile until you suffer this test. Let the marechal kneel roses that Percy brought you on the night you gave him your heart be served as a salad with French dressing before your eyes at a Schulenberg table d'hote. Had Juliet so seen her love tokens dishonored, the sooner would she have sought the lethean herbs of the good apothecary. But what a witch is spring! Into the great cold city of stone and iron a message had to be sent. There was none to convey it but the little hardy courier of the fields with his rough green coat and modest air. He is a true soldier of fortune, this Dent de Leon, this lion's tooth, as the French chefs call him. Flowered, he will assist at lovemaking, wreathed in my lady's nut-brown hair. Young and callow and unblossomed, he goes into the boiling pot and delivers the word of his sovereign mistress. By and by Sarah forced back her tears. The cards must be written. But still, in a faint golden glow from her dandelionine dream, she fingered the typewriter keys absently for a little while, with her mind and heart in the meadow lane with her young farmer. But soon she came swiftly back to the rock-bound lanes of Manhattan, and the typewriter began to rattle and jump like a strike-breaker's motor car. At six o'clock the waiter brought her dinner and carried away the typewritten bill of fare. When Sarah ate, she set aside with a sigh the dish of dandelions with its crowning ovarious accompaniment. As this dark mass had been transformed from a bright and love-endorsed flower to be an ignominious vegetable, so had her summer hopes wilted and perished. Love may, as Shakespeare said, feed on itself, but Sarah could not bring herself to eat the dandelions that had graced, as ornaments, the first spiritual banquet of her heart's true affection. At 7.30 the couple in the next room began to quarrel. The man in the room above sought for A on his flute. The gas went a little lower. 
three coal wagons started to unload, the only sound of which the phonograph is jealous. Cats on the back fences slowly retreated toward Muckton. By these signs, Sarah knew that it was time for her to read. She got out The Cloister and the Hearth, the best non-selling book of the month, and settled her feet on her trunk and began to wander with Gerard. The front doorbell rang. The landlady answered it. Sarah left Gerard and Dennis, treed by a bear, and listened. Oh, yes, you would, just as she did. And then a strong voice was heard in the hall below, and Sarah jumped for her door, leaving the book on the floor, and the first round easily the bears. You have guessed it. She reached the top of the stairs, just as her farmer came up, three at a jump, and reaped and garnered her, with nothing left for the gleaners. "'Why haven't you written? Oh, why?' cried Zara. "'New York is a pretty large town,' said Walter Franklin. "'I came in a week ago to your old address. "'I found that you went away on a Thursday. "'That consoled some. "'It eliminated the possible Friday bad luck. "'But it didn't prevent my hunting for you with police and otherwise ever since.' "'I wrote,' said Sarah, vehemently. "'Never got it. "'Then how did you find me?' The young farmer smiled a springtime smile. I dropped into that home restaurant next door this evening, said he. I don't care who knows it. I like a dish of some kind of greens at, at this time of the year. I ran my eye down that nice typewritten bill of fare looking for something in that line. When I got below cabbage, I turned my chair over and hollered for the proprietor. And he told me where you lived. I remember, sighed Sarah happily. That was dandelions below cabbage. I know that cranky capital W way above the line that your typewriter makes anywhere in the world, said Franklin. Why, there's no W in dandelions, said Sarah in surprise. The young man drew the bill of fare from his pocket and pointed to a line. Sarah recognized the first card she'd typewritten that afternoon. There was still the rayed splotch in the upper right-hand corner where a tear had fallen. But over the spot where one should have read the name of the meadow plant, the clinging memory of their golden blossoms had allowed her fingers to strike strange keys. Between the red cabbage and the stuffed green peppers was the item, Dearest Walter, with hard-boiled egg. We'll return to a second O. Henry short story right after this sponsor message. And now, back to our show. And now, Between Rounds, by O. Henry. The May moon shone bright upon the private boarding-house of Mrs. Murphy. By reference to the almanac, a large amount of territory will be discovered upon which its rays also fell. Spring was in its heyday, with hay fever soon to follow. The parks were green with new leaves, and buyers for the western and southern trade. Flowers and summer resort agents were blowing. The air and answers to Lawson were growing milder. Hand organs, fountains, and pinochle were playing everywhere. The windows of Mrs. Murphy's boarding-house were open. A group of boarders were seated on a high stoop upon round, flat mats like German pancakes. In one of the second-floor front windows, Mrs. McCaskey awaited her husband. Supper was cooling on the table. Its heat went to Mrs. McCaskey. At nine, Mr. McCaskey came. He carried his coat on his arm and his pipe in his teeth, and he apologized for disturbing the boarders on the steps as he selected spots of stone between them on which to set his size nine with D feet. As he opened the door of his room, he received a surprise. Instead of the usual stove lid or potato masher for him to dodge, 
came only words. Mr. McCaskey reckoned that the benign May moon had softened the breast of his spouse. "'I heard ye,' came the oral substitutes for kitchenware. "'Ye can apologize to the riffraff of the streets for setting your unhandy feet on the tails of their frocks, but ye'd walk on the neck of your wife the length of a clothesline without so much as a kiss me first. And I'm sure it's that long from rubbering out the windy for ye, and the victuals cold such as there's money to buy after drinking up your wages at Gallagher's every Saturday evening, and the gas man here twice today for his money. "'Woman!' said Mr. McCaskey, dashing his coat and hat upon a chair. "'The noise of ye is an insult to me appetite. "'When ye run down politeness, ye take the mortar from between the bricks of the foundations of society. "'Tis no more than exercising the acrimony of a gentleman "'when ye ask the descent of ladies blocking the way for stepping between them. "'Will ye bring the pig's face and ye out of the windy and see to the food?' "'Mrs. McCaskey arose heavily and went to the stove.' There was something in her manner that warned Mr. McCaskey. When the corners of her mouth went down suddenly like a barometer, it usually foretold a fall of crockery and tinware. "'Pig's face, is it?' said Mrs. McCaskey, and hurled a stewpan full of bacon and turnips at her lord. Mr. McCaskey was no novice at repartee. He knew what should follow the entree. On the table was a roast sirloin of pork, garnished with shamrocks. He retorted by throwing this and drew the appropriate return of a bread pudding in an earthen dish. A hunk of Swiss cheese accurately thrown by her husband struck Mrs. McCaskey below one eye. When she replied with a well-aimed coffee-pot full of hot, black, semi-fragrant liquid, the battle, according to courses, should have ended. But Mr. McCaskey was no fifty-cent table doter. Let cheap bohemians consider coffee the end, if they would. Let them make that faux pas. He was foxier still. Finger bowls were not beyond the compass of his experience. They were not to be had in the pension Murphy, but their equivalent was at hand. Triumphantly he sent the granite-ware wash-basin at the head of his matrimonial adversary. Mrs. McCaskey dodged just in time. She reached for a flat-iron, with which, as a sort of cordial, she hoped to bring the gastronomical duel to a close. But a loud, wailing scream downstairs caused both her and Mr. McCaskey to pause in a sort of involuntary armistice. On the sidewalk at the corner of the house, Policeman Cleary was standing with one ear upturned, listening to the crash of household utensils. "'Tis John McCaskey and his missus at it again,' meditated the policeman. "'I wonder shall I go up and stop the row. I will not. Married folks they are, and few pleasures they have. Twill not last long. Sure, they have to borrow more dishes to keep it up with.' And just then came the loud scream below stairs, "'beckoning fear or dire extremity. "'Tis probably the cat,' said Policeman Cleary, "'and walked hastily in another direction. "'The boarders on the steps were fluttered. "'Mr. Toomey, an insurance solicitor by birth "'and an investigator by profession, "'went inside to analyze the scream. "'He returned with the news that Mrs. Murphy's little boy, Mike, was lost. "'Following the messenger, out bounced Mrs. Murphy, two hundred pounds in tears and hysterics, clutching the air and howling to the sky for the loss of thirty pounds of freckles and mischief. Bathos, truly, but Mr. Toomey sat down at the side of Miss Purdy, millinery, and their hands came together in sympathy. The two old maids, Mrs. Walsh, who complained every day about the noise in the halls, inquired immediately if anybody had looked behind the clock. Mayor Grigg, who sat by his fat wife on the top step, arose and buttoned his coat. The little one lost? 
he exclaimed. "'I will scour the city.' "'His wife never allowed him out after dark, "'but now she said, "'Go, Ludovic,' in a baritone voice. "'Whoever can look upon that mother's grief "'without springing to her relief has a heart of stone. "'Give me some uh, thirty or sixty cents, me love,' said the Major. "'Lost children can sometimes stray far. "'I may need carfare.' Old man Denny, hall room, fourth floor back, who sat on the lowest step, trying to read a paper by the street lamp, turned over a page to follow up the article about the carpenter's strike. Mrs. Murphy shrieked to the moon. Oh, ar, Mike, for God's sake, where is me little bit of a boy? When did you see him last? asked old man Denny, with one eye on the report of the building trades league. Oh, wailed Mrs. Murphy, twas yesterday, or maybe four hours ago. "'I don't know, but it's lost he is, me little boy Mike. "'He was playing on the sidewalk only this morning. "'Or was it Wednesday? "'I'm that busy with work. "'Tis hard to keep up with the dates. "'But I've looked the house over from top to cellar, "'and it's gone he is. "'Ah, for the love of heaven!' "'Silent, grim, colossal, "'the big city has ever stood against its revilers. "'They call it hard as iron. "'They say that no pulse of pity beats in its bosom.' They compare its streets with lonely forests and deserts of lava. But beneath the hard crust of the lobster is found a delectable and luscious food. Perhaps a different simile would have been wiser. Still, nobody should take offense. We would call no one a lobster without good and sufficient claws. No calamity so touches the common heart of humanity as does the strain of a little child. Their feet are so uncertain and feeble. Their ways are so steep and strange. Major Griggs hurried down to the corner and up the avenue into Billy's place. "'Give me a wry eye,' he said to the servitor. "'Ain't seen a bow-legged, dirty-faced little devil of a six-year-old kid round here anywhere, have you?' Mr. Toomey retained Miss Purdy's hand on the steps. "'Think of that dear little babe,' said Miss Purdy. "'Lost from his mother's side, perhaps already fallen beneath the iron hoofs of galloping steeds. "'Oh, isn't it dreadful?' "'Ain't that right?' "'agreed Mr. Toomey, squeezing her hand. "'I say I start out and help look for him. "'Perhaps,' said Miss Purdy, "'you should. "'But, oh, Mr. Toomey, "'you are so dashing, so reckless. "'Suppose in your enthusiasm "'some accident should befall you. "'And then what?' "'Old man Denny read on about the arbitration agreement "'with one finger on the lines. "'In the second floor front, Mr. and Mrs. McCaskey came to the window to recover their second wind. Mr. McCaskey was scooping turnips out of his vest with a crooked forefinger, and his lady was wiping an eye that the salt of the roast pork had not benefited. They heard the outcry below and thrust their heads out of the window. "'Tis little Mike is lost,' said Mrs. McCaskey in a hushed voice. "'The beautiful little trouble-making angel of a gossoon!' "'The bit of a boy mislaid,' said Mr. McCaskey, leaning out of the window. "'Why, now, nah, that's bad enough entirely. "'The childer, they'll be different. "'If it was a woman, I'd be willing, "'for they leave peace behind them when they go.' "'Disregarding the thrust, "'Mrs. McCaskey caught her husband's arm. "'John,' she said sentimentally, "'Mrs. Murphy's little boy is lost. "'Tis a great city for losing little boys. Six years old he was. "'John, tis the same age our little boy had been "'if he'd have been one, "'if we'd have had one six years ago.' "'We never did,' said Mr. McCaskey, lingering with the fact. 
But if we had, John, think what sorrow would be in our arts this night, with our little failing run away and stolen in the city nowheres at all. You talk foolishness, said Mr. McCaskey. Tis Pat he'd be named, after me old father in Cantrim, not failing. Ye lie, said Mrs. McCaskey, without anger. Me brother was worth ten dozen bog-trotting McCaskies. After him would the, the by be named. She leaned over the window sill and looked down at the hurrying and bustle below. John, said Mrs. McCaskey softly. I'm sorry I was hasty with you. Add to his hasty pudding, as ye say, said her husband. And hurry up, turnips, and get a move on your coffee. Tis what you could call a quick lunch, all right, and tell no lie. Mrs. McCaskey slipped her arm inside her husband's and took his rough hand in hers. Listen at the crying of poor Mrs. Murphy, she said. Tis an awful thing for a bit of by to be lost in this great big city. If twas our little failing, John, I'd be breaking me heart. Awkwardly, Mr. McCaskey withdrew his hand, but he laid it around the nearing shoulders of his wife. Ah, tis foolishness, of course, said he, roughly. But I'd be cut up some meself if our little Pat was kidnapped or anything. But there never was any childer for us. Sometimes I've been ugly and hard with you, Judy. Forget it. They leaned together and looked down at the hard drama being acted below. Long they sat thus. People surged along the sidewalk, crowding, questioning, filling the air with rumors, and in consequence surmises. Mrs. Murphy plowed back and forth in their mist like a soft mountain down which plunged an audible cataract of tears. Couriers came and went. Loud voices and a renewed uproar were raised in front of the boarding house. "'What's up now, Judy?' asked Mr. McCaskey. "'Tis Mrs. Murphy's voice,' said Mrs. McCaskey, harking. "'She says she's after finding little Mike asleep behind the roll of old linoleum under the bed in her room.' Mr. McCaskey laughed loudly. "'Yeah, that's your feeling,' he shouted sardonically. "'Divil a bit what a pat had done that trick. "'If the boy we never had is straight and stole by the powers, "'call him Phelan, and see him hide out under the bed like a mangy pup.' "'Mrs. McCaskey arose heavily and went toward the dish-closet "'with the corners of her mouth drawn down. "'Policeman Cleary came back around the corner as the crowd dispersed. "'Surprised, the upturned an ear toward the McCaskey apartment.' where the crash of irons and chinaware and the ring of hurled kitchen utensils seemed as loud as ever. Policeman Cleary took out his timepiece. "'By the deported snakes!' he exclaimed. "'John McCaskey and his lady have been fighting for an hour and a quarter by the watch. The missus could give him forty pounds weight. Strength to his arm!' Policeman Cleary strolled back around the corner. Old man Denny folded his paper and hurried up the steps, just as Mrs. Murphy was about to lock the door for the night. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Greatest Love Stories. And we, and we might have to call this second story an exception, to, an exception to our title. But it was definitely a story of what life was like in the tenements in New York City at the turn of the last century. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you do enjoy our show, please do send us a review for 1001 Greatest Love Stories. And tell a friend. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll see you then.